and you've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned in to our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify the work of the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person with a funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You probably also know me as the Council's voice on social media at Council of D.C. Um, And I'd like to welcome back one of our most uh, frequent guests, at-large council member Robert White. Thank you for taking time out, council member. Appreciate it. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate you having me back. Not a problem. Well, rumor has it that you might have had a brief poorly attended uh, hearing on schools and COVID uh, <laughs> recently. I'm, of course, kidding. It was a very well attended and, and rather long and, and uh, detailed. The, the folks that say, oh, isn't the council's responsibility oversight? Watch that hearing because it was we were talking ceiling panels. We were talking we were from the macro to the micro on that hearing. So, so thank you for doing that. And thank you for uh, spending a bit more time on the topic with me today. Absolutely. I, I appreciate it. The, uh, the council is uh, still, well, was still in recess, but it, it was such an important and urgent issue. We wanted to make sure we had a hearing on it as quickly as possible. Yeah. What were the kind of key takeaways that stuck with you of, uh, you know, for the people that don't have the, the multiple hours to rewatch it? Um, so yeah, um, I, I don't blame, even if you do have the hours, I don't necessarily, uh, recommend our, um, maybe 10 hour hearing from, from last week. Uh, the, the key points were, were this, uh, parents have a lot of consternation about sending our kids, uh, back into school buildings. I'm one of those parents myself. And when, when the schools say, don't worry, we have these air purifying machines, so it's all good but the HVAC doesn't work, it makes us think, hmm, how do we know the air purifiers are working? Um, But also, why are my kids in a classroom where it's 85 degrees and why didn't anyone know about this? These are all reasonable concerns. And so we need to, you know, we had to have a hearing to understand what the heck happened, why so many kids and teachers went back to classrooms that didn't have AC, uh, how do parents feel about it, and how do we fix this problem? Uh, Because we, we can't return to schools like this every year with so many facilities issues piled up. And this was a tough year, so I don't want to be you know, too hard on, on anybody. Uh, there's a supply chain issues. There are you know, employee retirements and uh, you know, people who have, have gotten COVID or afraid of COVID and they, they've left their jobs. So it's been a difficult issue, no doubt, a difficult year, no doubt. But we, we have to make sure we're meeting parents' expectations when school starts. And also, I mean, those of us who have been around for a while get a sense of deja vu, like it used to be school started and there's no books. And we did that for years. And then I don't know what changed, but fortunately, maybe we stopped using books and everything is online, but we don't hear that uh, much anymore, that that the school books didn't arrive. But it seems like every year, uh, obviously we're starting a pandemic, but every year we have these facilities, unresolved facilities issues. And, and, uh, it seems like the communication between DCPS and DGS, Department of General Services, at least part of the issue is is in that 
uh, tangled web. Um, what, 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 what did you take away from the conversation about where responsibility may lie? Yeah, I, I, I wish we had gotten a little bit further with uh, responsibility. Um, you know, we heard from the administration, both from Department of General Services and from D.C. Public Schools. Hey, we hear you. Uh, but what we didn't hear was, OK, we dropped the ball. You know, so DGS is saying, well, we did let DCPS know that the HVAC wasn't going to be working on the first day of school and that we were going to have a temporary solution. Uh, but parents didn't know. Teachers didn't know. So, you know, maybe it looks like DCPS dropped the ball in, in communications. Uh, but 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 clearly there was a breakdown. And, and I think it's the type of thing, you know, there was a time where school books uh, weren't at schools on, on time. And, you know, sometimes you get comfortable for too long uh, and you need a whole systems refresh. And I, I think across the government. We're at uh, the point in time where we need a refresh. You know, Mayor Williams did a lot of work to really uh, raise our government to the next level. And in a lot of ways, we coasted for quite some time. But we're starting to see sort of the infrastructure break down again. Where, you know, folks have tried to use the unemployment insurance system, DCPS uh, facilities. Uh, you, you see it in, in D Department of Employment Services uh, programs. You see it throughout the government. And so, you know, every, every you know, once in a while, you, you got to say, all right, we're going to do the thing that isn't sexy. We're going to kind of take a deep dive and, and really refresh the systems. And it seems like back in the Williams uh, administration and the Fenty administration, there was a big emphasis on uh, being able to measure things on metrics. But the challenge of metrics is anyone who's called 311 knows this or, you know, DC.gov uh, use the app. It's not necessarily the resolution of a problem that is captured. It's the box being checked in the measurement tool indicating the problem has been resolved. That's right. And it sounds like there was a ton of that going on in uh, in the hearing that Salesforce, the um, whole separate issue of whether Salesforce, a commercial sales management tool, should be the best way to measure uh, property management work orders. That I don't know about. But the problem is, it seems like just like in 311, there's a lot of box checking for project complete without the task being completed. And I don't know how you reconcile that because you always are going to need a human to yeah. check it no pun intended to check it, whether the problem was resolved and then check the box yeah. to say it was. And the second those two drift apart, there's problems. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, metrics are important. They're important for accountability. They're, you know, important for, for getting things done. But just having metric, you know, what metrics you capture and which metrics you report um, matter a great deal. And also that you have actually fixed the thing that was reported. So uh, we, we, we still have some steps to take. Yeah, because that, I mean, in a lot of ways, that resets the clock. And with the question of all the thousands of work orders, I think was discussed, a lot of those are multiple work orders because people put something in, say, hey, fix this. It gets checked as completed. It's not fixed. They have to put it back in again. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, not to get too far in the weeds, but you you already know way more than you should about facilities issues. But it gets further complicated because, you know, you say, well, you know, the HVAC is, is broken or, or we have a leak in the roof. And so you put in a work order. Uh, well, it turns out that the fix is incredibly expensive. And so it requires sort of a, a budget line item. And that kicks it over from DGS to DCPS to make the determination about which of these issues are going first, second, third, fourth. Uh, and then word never gets back to the person who submitted the work order. They just want the AC to work. They just want the hole in the roof fixed. <laughs> And they left completely in the dark. 
because their complaint went into this, you know, huge government bureaucracy of two mammoth agencies. Um, and so we we always have to think about the end user. You know, those of us who work in government, whether it's an elective office or work for an agency or do communications for the council, you know, we always have to remember that the work we do is for uh, those people. And if the system doesn't work for them or doesn't make sense to them, then we got to look at the system again. Yeah, and we're asking an awful lot of our principals and our educators and our kids to go into these challenging physical structures. Yeah. You know, the, the, the teachers that have the thermometer and that, you know, we're showing it's 85 degrees in their classroom. You know, it's already a challenge to get kids to focus during a time of COVID and yeah. after been screen addicted for a year and a half. Uh, then to do it when their ceiling's dripping and you can't sit in a quarter of the room or the you know, temperature is out of control uh, and the whiteboards don't, you know, the smart boards don't work. Um, it's a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask. It is. It really is. And, and I, you know, I, 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 you know, I'm so grateful for our teachers last year uh, doing virtual well, two years ago now switching to a virtual learning uh, instruction. Then last school year, doing it for many of our teachers the entire school year and now transitioning back in a difficult, you know, difficult environment, you know, knowing that you're walking into a classroom every day uh, full of kids who aren't all going to wear their mask correctly all the time. And so we are asking, as you said, a lot of our teachers and, you know, we, we just got to be grateful for the work that they're doing. We got to remember how much they're sacrificing and make sure that we are keeping them in mind as we, you know, develop our, our government processes. Do you might not know this uh, offhand, but do most cities have a two track system like we do where there's D.C. public schools that runs the schools and a separate property management arm that handles repairs? Um, I, or do most places do that in-house? I, I doubt most places do that in, in-house because we have over the decades, you know, streamlined uh, the focus of, of agencies. So you don't have an agency trying to educate kids and fix rules and lease cars. Uh, but but I, I haven't done a survey or seen a survey to, to kind of break down what that looks like. I almost feel like that's one of those things where every 10 years or so we change our mind, you know, and that's centralized <laughs> facility management sounds great and streamlined and smart government but then it's like the repairs are so far away from the people ordering the repairs that then we're like we need to bring it back in house and then you know repeat rinse repeat you you've been here before i see (laughs) yeah yeah it's 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 a shame i mean it's difficult it's difficult to run a business of this size um with this diverse uh number of services provided uh, intelligently. Yeah. It's even harder to run it secondhand from the council, you know, where we don't, we pass the budget, we do the oversight, but ultimately we can't fix things yeah. ourselves. Yeah. It, it is difficult. It, you know, the governments, you know, most businesses, you know, even if you're as big as Amazon, you, you, you still uh, have a relatively narrow focus, at least compared to, to government. You know, we we're trying to get the, the streets paved. We're trying to take care of education, public safety, public health and everything else that doesn't have a, a home or a remedy. And um, and it is it is difficult to, to run. But, uh, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, you know, you kind of signed up for this. You know, I never know how how folks grow old in elective office because it's just it's so much work, you know. And uh, at some point, 
you got to catch your breath, but you know, you, you, you know, you sprint as best you can, you know, you kind of fill those holes. And, And one of the things I love about local government is you are part of the community that you're working for. So when I'm working on education issues, you know, I have one and soon to be two daughters in DC public schools. You know, I got potholes in my street sometimes. And so, you know, people in my family looking for jobs. And so, you know, I I like feeling like this this government that I work with and work on and try to make better uh, is, you know, part of my community the same way that I'm part of, of my community. But it is a mammoth thing and uh, no no shortage of, of challenges, because once you fix one thing, you've broken two others. Yeah, I mean, it, you picture the old people in the variety shows where they're spinning the plates on the sticks. <laughs> you get one plate spinning nicely. And then meanwhile, over there, stay D.C., that plate's wobbling. and You run <laughs> over and from a council standpoint, you try to give some oversight to that. And, uh, you know, people don't realize the uh, the fact that the council is undersized. It is the fact that we're a state legislature, county board and city council. And there's just 13 uh, council members and under 200 staffers total. Um, That that's doesn't even barely register as an agency of the district government. That's right. Yeah, we are severely undersized to to your point. Both Vermont and Wyoming are two states that have uh, smaller populations than D.C. Both have bicameral state legislatures. Wyoming has uh, 180. Vermont, I think, uh, has has 90 uh, people. Then they also have city councils and county councils. And you have 13 of us trying to do the work of, of you know, hundreds of people. And, you know, these poor council staffers and shout out to them because they are working around the clock nonstop. You know, they are each doing the work of at least five people. And uh, I think there's a we lose a lot in terms of uh, efficiency and effectiveness uh, because of our small size. And also the expectations are so diverse because there's a constituent service, you know, super drilled down micro level of service folks expect from council members. But then there's also the broad policy solutions, legislating and uh, oversight. Yeah. And there's some overlap between those worlds, but they're very different skill sets and very yeah. different groups of people asking about those. That's right. Um, personal issue for me uh, that I think I've heard you mention as well is outdoor uh, dining. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's been a bunch of stuff ordered. It's been back ordered. What I don't understand is why DCPS hasn't said to their schools, we want your school specific outdoor dining plan in two weeks. You know, put aside whether you have the stuff, don't have the stuff. We want a plan in hand specific to your school for how you're going to get your kids out of the building when they're eating. Yeah. Um, I don't think they've done that. Why, why that doesn't cost any money. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems for, for whatever reason, it seems that uh, DC public schools has not prioritized outdoor dining. My, my daughter eats in, a, in her classroom every day. That makes me incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, <clears throat> and because uh, DC public schools hasn't prioritized it, nor have they uh, gotten the equipment or funding to schools in a timely manner, it, it would be hard for uh, the city to say to schools, give us your plan when when the city hasn't provided sufficient support for, for them in the first place. Um, and so we, we need to see more of a leadership role from uh, DCPS and from the rest of the government. This may shock people to, to hear but but schools are are asking uh, are having difficulty with the permitting process. So you you have to get a permit, pay the fees uh, in order to set up outdoor dining. And 
why? You know, in an emergency situation like this, uh, permitting should be exempted for schools. Uh, but, um, you know, we just we, we haven't prioritized it for reasons that I still can't understand. Uh, we could actually be doing a lot of outdoor learning uh, for a significant part of, of the year uh, if it is something that, that we have prioritized. But but for whatever reason, uh, D.C. Public Schools has, has been fighting that idea a bit. And I, I hope we get it together because I've seen some pretty cool things from some of the families. Uh, I, know, I think it's at uh, Powell Elementary in Ward 4. Uh, one of the parents who came to testify at, at our hearing last week so they have uh, parent volunteers who help break down the uh, equipment at the end of the school day uh, so that they can have uh, outdoor uh, dining, uh, but they still don't have a full kind of answer because when it rains, uh, they, there's still not a, a workable solution. So uh, they, they, there has to be more support. They had to uh, do a, a GoFundMe to, uh, to, to get some of their equipment because the funding was coming in too slowly uh, from, from the city. So we, we still have a ways to go on outdoor dining and outdoor learning. Yeah, I mean, I feel like originally DCPS, just to make a parallel, uh, wanted uh, COVID testing to be an opt-in thing that parents had to opt in and, you know, and sign a permission slip and waive their legal rights. And fortunately, thanks to council pressure, they flipped that and they turned it to opt out. I wish outdoor dining would be that kind of thing, that it would be an expectation of every school to provide some sort of outdoor. I, I don't need them sitting. Yeah. You know, they can be leaning on a wall. Um, you know, for, and it's only the people that opt into leaving the cafeteria, which would be a tiny subset probably anyway. Um, but I wish that the schools were required to provide a plan. Yeah. Um, you know, but it, it seems it, like it it's would, an opt in. Like if you're the one or two schools that you, the principal happens to think that's a priority. Yeah. Like, you know, you mentioned Powell, like that happens, but everywhere else, because it's not prioritized, you know, right. it gets dropped. It, it does. And it, it's frustrating because the, these are the types of things that you, you know, want and, and hope that uh, government would be uh, more receptive to. And, and I think if we spent more time listening to the parents and teachers, we would have gotten here a while ago. Uh, but but we sort of take this uh, we know what's best for you approach. And, and I think it's 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 failing with respect to COVID because the, the concerns that that people have and particularly parents, you know, who are we're trying to figure it out as best we can for our kids. Um, you know, when 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 we feel like our concerns aren't taken seriously, it's really difficult to develop trust. And so when somebody says trust us, well, you know, we don't have a reservoir of, of trust. Uh, and it's it, I think it just doesn't have to be this way. Maybe folks are tired. Maybe we just kind of need a refresher on breaking out of bureaucracies. Uh, but whatever it is, we got to figure it out. Uh, what we will see soon, the council is doing emergency legislation uh, to, you know, in, in many ways, kind of micromanage uh, the schools to expand virtual learning options, to require quicker reporting uh, facilities issues, to increase the amount of testing. And, and that's not the position the council should be in. We shouldn't be legislating things like this. But, but there's just been no give whatsoever uh, on school issues. And so the, the council has had no choice. Um, you know, we are hearing from parents every day. Uh, I went to a neighborhood festival on uh, Saturday and, you know, a mom just kind of randomly stopped me and said, you know, thanks for what the council is doing to expand uh, virtual learning because she said her daughter has a rare neurological disorder and qualifies for virtual learning. 
but her son doesn't qualify because the definition is so strict. And so her son goes to school every day and his mother is so afraid that he may, her son may come back home with, with COVID. And that's, that's not the type of, um, you know, fear or consternation that, that any parent needs, um, not as we're still battling a pandemic. Right. And I think, you know, a lot of it comes down to um, how the rules are written, because I, a friend of mine would, would uh, told me about a case in California when they legalized medical marijuana years or decades ago that uh, a friend of theirs had a uh, the doctor who signed off on the medical condition for this person who was a man had an OBGYN was the doctor who signed his permission slip to say he could get medical marijuana. So if it becomes that kind of thing where any doctor, you know, can sign a thing and, it, you know, it, what's been good, I think, about the virtual learning cutoff is it's been legit. A doctor has to put their name on the record and say, I require this child to not attend school. Yeah. Um, and I think the case you gave is a perfect example that there, a doctor would sign for the siblings saying they should not be forced to go to school. But we just have to be careful. The floodgates don't open. And that it's legitimate doctor sign-offs only. I'll tell you though, parent with the sibling. Yeah, I, the most, most parent, we want our kids in schools. I don't think they're going to be too. I don't think there would be floodgates, even if it was wide open. Um, my my wife and I, after a year and a half of, uh, of virtual learning, you know, these these crow's feet on my my eyes is grazing my beard. <laughs> I attribute most of them to the past 18 months. You know, we most of us really do want our our kids in school. Lucky uh, for us, we're so blessed. No one in our household is immunocompromised. Um, and so, you know, we are able to have more flexibility uh, than most. But uh, but but we count ourselves very blessed to uh, to to have a difficult but not impossible dec decision to make. Yeah. And, and even the immunocompromised versus immunosuppressed. It's like I'm diabetic. When they first rolled out boosters, it was just for immunosuppressed, which is an even smaller subset yeah. than the initial um, subset of folks who could get the uh, the vaccine early. So I'm actually I'll find out tomorrow at the legislative meeting whether it's immuno, uh, you know, whether the broadened virtual learning exception is for immunosuppressed. Yeah siblings and parents or immunocompromised. Cause I, I saw the uh, chairman interviewed and he said, just because you are raised by elderly grandparents, for example, if they're in good health, yeah. that would not be a virtual learning exception. Yeah. But, uh, but the devil's in the details. Yeah. Um, the other complication is this stuff isn't allowed to cost money since okay. the council's fix is an emergency bill needs nine votes and it can't cost money. Um, and the administration is the one that ultimately will say whether or not it does cost money in their mind. Yeah. And if they're opposed to it, we don't know how that answer will come back. Yeah. Speak, speak to that a bit. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the administration has kind of used the, well, this is going to cost money, uh, trump card so many times that I think most of us now just see it coming. Uh, since I saw it coming, I went ahead and asked in a hearing uh, with the chancellor two weeks ago, if DC public schools could expand virtual learning if COVID uh, required it or necessitated, it. And he said that, that they are, are ready to do that. Uh, to me, that means you 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 already are, are setting that structure up and, and can do it. So uh, I think the chancellor has already said on the record that expanding virtual learning is something that DCPS is already doing uh, or at least getting the capabilities 
already. So, so I think that they have foreclosed the legitimate argument uh, that it's going to cost money. But this is also, you know, one of these things that's it's technical, you know, for people outside. So, uh, you know, the people we represent see uh, a bill uh, to address education issues and they say it doesn't go far enough. Why aren't you guys going further? And the reality is, again, you know, uh, an emergency is only in order. You can only get it to a vote if it doesn't cost money. So most of us want to go further, but we are, are limited. And that can be a hard thing to, to explain to, to residents. The alternative is permanent legislation, and that'll take, you know, generally months to pass, but then we can't fund it until the next fiscal year. So you're talking about a, a solution that won't be uh, in effect, best case scenario, until a year from now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is where the Congress's uh, restrictions on us and how we pass legislation are also a complication that um, it's a, a bit of a straitjacket. You know, how can we fix what we see as uh, um, shortcomings of the system the mayor's put in place without costing any money or right. getting nine votes? Um, now, in terms of the virtual learning, um, one group that I think gets forgotten is the uh, the kids who are quarantining, the kids that have an exposure uh, in their classroom. Uh, they were a close contact. Yeah. Um, you know, in the case example you gave, the sibling of the immunocompromised child, they're probably going to get pulled out under these new rules and stay out as long as they they need to until COVID's under control. They'll at least have a permanent system because their teacher will know that they're out and they're virtual. But in a school where you where a classroom where you have people coming and going to a certain extent, how do you make sure those kids don't just lose those days and they get quality short term virtual instruction? So right now, uh, students are uh, when they are, are quarantining are supposed to get some virtual instruction, but it, it doesn't seem to be fully in sync with what's going on in their actual classroom. And then what we're hearing on the ground is that most kids are just getting a, a packet of, of work. Uh, but but one of the, our Northern Virginia neighbors, I think it's Fairfax County Public Schools, uh, is simulcasting all the classrooms. So when a kid has to quarantine, they won't be able to ask questions in real time because the teacher is paying attention to the class, but they are seeing the instruction in real time and they do get time with the teacher daily uh, in addition to getting their work. And I, I think that's a good uh, way to address it. So that's the model that, that I think we should be moving toward in, in DC. And then what happens if the teacher ends up quarantining, then the, is it a return to more of the uh, virtual teaching from the teacher's standpoint and there's just a screen at the front of the classroom? How does, how does that work? Well, again, I think there's uh, still a disconnect from kind of what folks say should happen and what's actually happening. But what should happen is the teacher should be able to uh, teach uh, virtually from home if if he or she is uh, is is quarantining and, and healthy. Yeah. Um, and, and you had mentioned that, that, I mean, we both have kids in school and we both this is intensely personal. You know, I, I asked the question about outdoor dining because my daughter is very uh, touchy on COVID stuff, always wears a mask, wears a good mask. And lunch since school started has been we make her a smoothie and she gets out her smoothie. She gets out her straw. She puts her straw under her mask. 
And that's lunch, you know, and she's sitting through an entire day because she doesn't want to take her mask off. Mm. Um, I realize she at least has the, the she's a little older. She, she has a little more flexibility than, than your kids might, but God, I mean, that's crazy. I hate that she's in school and can't eat a proper meal and, and is choosing to undernourish herself in the name of long-term safety because she's yeah. protecting us and protecting, you know, my mom. Um, talk a little bit about the personal, like you said, the personal toll, you know, yeah. what goes through your mind. Yeah. It's, I mean, as a, as a, as a parent, um, I, I always worry um, because I know I, you know, I have a, a five-year-old and a two and a half year old and they are both really good uh, it, it, with wearing their masks and very disciplined, but they are also two and five. And uh, every school I go to, whether it's my kid's school or another school that I'm visiting on official duty, I see a lot of, of, of people with masks below their chin, under their nose. And I know that's the daily reality for, for my daughters, one in daycare and the other in, in kindergarten. Uh, and I, and I'm, I'm basically, you know, living on a hope and a prayer uh, because neither can be, be vaccinated yet. Um, luckily, again, you know, no, no family members uh, who are immunocompromised live with us. But, you know, we do come in contact with our family members more than we did a year ago. Um, and so we, we worry a lot about our safety, about other people's safety. And it's, you know, it's something that, that we live with. But and, and it's not something that we can we, we can't bring that risk down to zero at this point. But we got to be able to bring it that risk as low as possible. And so it's 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 a difficult um, it's a difficult compromise every day. Yeah, and talking to my prior interview was with Councilmember Nadeau, and we were talking about how parenting is is a life, basically a lifelong exercise in risk reduction. That every single thing you do, sending them to overnight camp, uh, teaching them to ride a bike, you're weighing the risks and rewards. You're weighing that they're going to skin their knee, you know, uh, you know what what your risk you're willing to tolerate, basically, and. The fact that you have to do that during COVID with school, with do we allow them to nap? <laughs> do we allow them to eat a meal inside a building? Uh, it's just so like we're used to a little bit of risk, but this is like, yeah. you know, the stakes are high. They are. I mean, very high. Very high. And we, I mean, we see even right now what's happening in D.C. Uh, with uh, the capacity at, at Children's Hospital. Uh, you know, not all of it uh, COVID, luckily, but Delta variant has certainly increased the number of children in the ICU, uh, but then a significant spike in other respiratory issues that, that children are having. And so we're seeing our ICU uh, beds filled at, at Children's Hospital. And, you know, we're all, all hoping that it's not going to be one of our kids. Um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult thought. And most of us are, are, are hoping for the best, but it is really, really a difficult decision. And, you know, we're hearing that uh, at the end of the month, uh, you know, we might get approval for uh, kids five to 11. Um, what is your sense? I know it's come up in a couple of council calls. I'm not sure we've gotten a good answer about how ready we are for the hopefully knock on wood deluge of kids five to 11 that parents are going to try to get vaccinated all at once that next day. Are we are we going back to the Hunger Games or? Do we think the system's in place? Uh, 
Uh, it, the system didn't handle the, the stress test well, um, and, and, and I, I expect that there will be some challenges uh, in the early days. My, my hope, though, is that we have learned enough lessons from the initial days of the vaccine uh, rollout when it became available to everyone that, that we can do better. Uh, you know, so many things have happened in the past year. Some of us kind of forget how difficult the rollout of the, uh, the vaccine was, but, you know, people kind of scrambling, just showing up to pharmacies and grocery stores, trying to, uh, to, to, to get the, uh, their, their COVID vaccine. Um, and, you know, but because most of our young people are in schools, I think it would be very foolish for us to do a vaccine rollout that wasn't uh, paired with with schools uh, because you know unlike us adults most of our young people are in you know a few centralized places uh, five days a week and we gotta take advantage of that yeah I mean I know the administration is uh, relying pretty heavily on the private sector doctors offices pharmacies um, and when the council pushes them on school-based vaccination they say uh, you know we are appointments aren't being taken up. We have plenty of appointments that are going, uh, that are not being um, signed up for. But the challenge is they're only doing two or three schools. Mm -hmm. So it's like, there's nothing magical about a school as a vaccination site, unless it's your kid's school. Right. And you're already there, your kid's already there. Uh, and hopefully it's a fairly trusted site. Yeah. So I think unless they're rolled out in so many schools that are virtually every school, you're not going to see the school sites get picked up any more than a random rec center. Cause if it's not in your neighborhood, then it's yeah. not a place you trust. Um, yeah. But I mean, is that, is that something that you think the council can fix with pressure um, to, to change the rollout of the kids vaccination? Or is that something like we're finding out tomorrow with virtual learning is going to require legislation? Yeah. Um, I mean, the what what we're seeing now is really a, a pattern of of inflexibility, and and again, I, I just think it's unfortunate, and I'm, I'm not really sure why we're seeing so much inflexibility. But uh, once once the administration digs their heels, and they they just don't reverse course uh, unless absolutely necessary. Um, I, I think it would be really unfortunate for us to not coordinate vaccinations with schools because, I mean, I think we know how it's going to play out. There are going to be 100 kids at, at CVS and at the doctor's offices. It's going to be complete pandemonium uh, as opposed to sort of permission slips and class by class, sort of a reasonable uh, process with makeup days as necessary. It's just, you know, it, it's it'd be so unreasonable to not coordinate this with with schools but uh it may end up requiring council intervention but but you know the council is also there it's separation of powers there's a limit to what the council can do so you know we could require vaccine rollouts for young kids to go through schools and the administration will say what that's going to come with a cost and therefore your emergency legislation isn't uh it isn't uh, uh available so uh you know, I'm, I'm always hopeful tides will turn and that there will be some reasonable conversations. But uh, I think we, you know, saw from virtual learning and many other aspects of school reopening that, um, you know, it's it's difficult to get uh, the administration to, to change course. Although the council's track record is pretty good in the sense that the council pushed the administration to move from the Hunger Games vaccine registration to pre-registration. And they said, we can't, we can't, we can't. And then they did. So that's a win for us. And then similarly, 
when we wanted in the early days, um, ward and uh, racial breakdown of COVID cases, COVID deaths, vaccination numbers. Mm-hmm. They said, we can't, it's impossible. We pushed, pushed, pushed. And then thank God we got the information because it showed a lot of the worrying uh, health disparities we thought it would. Yeah. So here, here's hoping that, that the council notches another win in that uh, inter-branch uh, arm wrestling match. Yeah, I, I hope so. And, and here's, you know, what I'll say, it may sound like I'm, I'm very critical of, of the administration, but my, my criticism is the, the lack of flexibility and not listening. Not that I think the council always gets it right. Uh, you know, sometimes the council is getting it right. Sometimes the administration is getting it right. What that means is we got to do a better job of listening to each other. Not Let's not just dig our heels in and say, you know, one, one body knows best. I think you see a lot less aggressive pushing from the council if there was a partnership uh, in this, you know, some give and take, some real conversation, uh, not we're going to listen to you just because we have to, but we're not really going to listen to you. Um, you know, that kind of has has reached its breaking point. And so I think, you know, I'm seeing a, a breakdown within the uh, mayor council relationship that I haven't seen in a long time. And, and I don't think it has to be this way. So, you know, my hope is that we recognize n- none of us, uh, you know, have all the answers. But, you know, if we're working together and listening to the people that we represent, I think we get to the right answers uh, most of the time. Right. And legislation is always, I don't want to say a last resort, but if we can get it through any other, through oversight, through kind of gentle urging, uh, there's a lot of other ways we will try to get things done. And legislation, a lot of times, as in this case, seems to be a last resort. Yeah, that's right. You know, we spent months trying to uh, convince uh, that there needed to be some small changes to virtual learning. And in the end, emergency legislation is not the best way, but if it's our only option. That's right. Well, we'll, we'll know more. Uh, this, is being, um, this is being videoed on uh, Monday. Uh, tomorrow we have the legislative meeting. So uh, we'll, know, we'll know better uh, tomorrow what, where things go from here. Yes, we will. Well, thank you again, council member, for being so generous with your time. Really appreciate you uh, coming back again and again. Um, It's much appreciated. Uh, And uh, listeners, I want to remind you to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts, now on Amazon even. Uh, Just search under Hearing the Council. Thanks for joining us. Tune in next time. We're on DC radio at 96.3 on your FM uh, HD4 dial or dcradio.gov. I'm Josh Gibson. This is not a council hearing. This is hearing the council. Thank you, council member. Take care. You too. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.